an ironic media production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com. Hi, aviation friends and family. This is Bert Bada again with another Everyday Heroes podcast. This story is told by an American Airlines captain who was flying on 9-11 and what he went through physically and emotionally during those dark days. A lot of what he tells us in this podcast will have a direct effect on those of us who are flying during these times. Joe Kiesling is an American Airlines A330 captain who is currently on medical leave with an eye problem. He was the poster boy for the Army's helicopter pilot recruiting program, and as he tells it, the commercial that aired with him in the cockpit of the latest model of the Cobra helicopter in the 1980 Super Bowl punched his ticket for the rest of his flying career. Hey, Everyday Heroes, I'm Bert Botta. Do you know what every man wants? If you can't come up immediately with the answer to that question, then pay close attention to my Everyday Heroes podcast series for golfs. That means guys over 50. And if you're not a guy over 50, or even if you're a gal, don't worry. There's going to be some very cool stuff here for both men and women. I've discovered answers to the kind of questions that every man has. And now I'm ready to help you put those answers to work in your life through these podcasts. If you take in what I have to share, it very well could change your life and help you do more than just push back the aging process. And my podcasts are mostly about aviation everyday heroes, but they're going to be a mix of women and men heroes just like you. So let's jump into this and see if what we talk about here helps bring out your own everyday hero. So give me a little bit of background as far as what brought you into aviation, your army career, and then segueing into the airlines, and then let's talk about 9-11, et cetera. So ramble on. My name is Joe Kiesling. I live in Tennessee in North Carolina. I'm currently a Airbus 330 captain for American Airlines. I am currently on a disability because of an eye problem, which I hope someday to get rid of and come back to work. Uh, I joined the Army when I was 17. I was an infantryman. I was uh, selected for uh, flight training as a warrant officer, and I wasn't really selected. My first sergeant decided that I was going to go, and he put in the paperwork, and he got me there. And uh, post-Vietnam, it was a very challenging time. They didn't need warrant officers, so the course was uh, very hard. Uh, We started with 50 candidates, and we graduated 17. And that was pretty much the... uh, standard graduation rate because they didn't need warrant officers. All they do, were doing were keeping the school open after Vietnam. Was that a uh, helicopter, Joe? Yeah. After Vietnam, all warrant officers came out of uh, flight school as a helicopter pilot. And to mm. this day, I'll swear to you that I, I'm a much better helicopter pilot than I ever am an airplane pilot because the Army just whipped it into you. You know, I mean, after 10 hours, we were out doing solo auto rotations in a TH-55, and when somebody crashed, they just bulldozed it away and kept going. I mean, they didn't even have an accident board. It was just a completely different mindset back then. And uh, you're pretty much on your own. So it was it was sort of like sink or swim. I went into the military, and I was very fortunate, as in uh, the unit that I was in, a couple of years down the road, uh, got the last production uh, helicopter uh, model of the Cobra that the Army bought. Army wanted to use that in a... Uh, recruiting commercial, I was selected to be in the commercial. And I didn't want to be in the commercial because I figured everybody was going to make fun of me and it would, you know, embarrass me. But uh, my commander pulled me to the side and shook me a couple of times and goes, you don't understand. I would want to be in this commercial because it will punch your ticket for the rest of your life. 
And little did I know that he was absolutely correct because for the rest of my aviation career, uh, people who in the military or out of who knew about the commercial either assumed that I uh, was so good that I was selected to be as a poster boy or choice B was that I knew someone and had a lot of pilots without a college degree and I did not have a college degree. I almost had a college degree, but I didn't have one. And when I went to the interview, they did a good cop, bad cop on me. And uh, one guy said, look, we don't hire guys without a college degree. And the other guy says, hey, you look familiar. And I said, well, you might have seen me on the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago. You know, that's segued into let's talk about the commercial. And then pretty soon we're yucking it up. And then all of a sudden I'm hired at American Airlines. So, yes, it was a uh, great ticket puncher for me. And uh, when, what year was that at uh, American? 86. Okay. And uh, at the time we were hiring a thousand pilots a year. And I was hired at the beginning of the hiring wave. And I was hired very young at uh, 25. I think I was celebrating my 26th birthday shortly. I made captain very shortly, within five years, and never looked back. My career was much different than someone who was hired in the late 80s, early 90s, who could have even been furloughed. So I don't say a word about luck and skill, because I just uh, have luck, no skill. And uh, I was very lucky, and I made wide body captain very early, and in 9-11, I was a wide body captain by 9-11. Of course, that all came to a screeching halt for the next, you know, decade. But uh, as we called it, the lost decade, which was really not really a lost decade. It was more 12 to 13 years. And and I think we actually had people that were still on furlough 16 years later, but they were on a voluntary furlough. It was very, very tough. I mean, a tough situation all the way around. And all I can tell you is, is that when I was in my early 40s, I think I may have been 40 or 41, and I was a wide body captain flying internationally to 14 destinations out of Chicago to Europe. And, you know, I had lots of money and life was good. And uh, I was running three crash pads. And, uh, you know, you just didn't think the world was going to change. And it changed overnight. And within two years, I was a a narrow body captain making about half of what I was making. And uh, I was divorced. It was one of those situations where it's just a kick in the gut and you either try to compartmentalize what we do as pilots or you, you know, you become depressed and unhappy about it. And we had some people who were very depressed and very unhappy about it. And uh, how did you, how'd you deal with that? Anything in particular that you did to deal with that? I mean, like therapy, uh, friends crying a lot or whatever, whatever it was, how'd you deal with that? You know, I was fortunate in that I have a farm in Tennessee and, I spent a lot of time at my farm working, just doing gut wrenching work on the farm, you know, and that takes your mind away from it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's basically was my therapy. I want to don't want to say it was a dark place because I never really experienced depression, but I saw a lot of our guys do it. In fact, they created a project at the airline I worked for called Project Wingman, which uh, basically you could turn someone. I don't want to say turn them in, but you could report them and it's completely, you know, non-punitive and say, hey, I think this guy's a little bit wound a little tight mm-hmm. or he may be a little bit depressed. And, uh, you know, we sitting in the cockpit are the first persons to notice that, especially, yeah. you know, especially if you spend eight or 10 hours on international talking. Uh, so basically we would give them the help that they needed because we did have quite a few, I don't want to say quite a few, but we did have several suicides 
In mm. fact, I was I had fallen back to Super 80 captain and I took a check ride on the Super 80 as a recurrent check ride. And I never saw a check airman show up late or or not be motivated or positive because I spent some time as a check airman. And uh, this guy was 20 minutes late. He walked in and he basically just kind of went through the numbers and uh, he killed himself. He hung himself uh, about two months later. Wow. And looking back, you could see it. And I have seen it even more in flying with the former Piedmont U.S. Air folks uh, at the Charlotte domicile. Uh, Some of those people, they did two passes through bankruptcy. They lost everything and they didn't know if they had a job a week to week. And Mm -hmm. some of those guys were affected by it. And, uh, you know, this is a double hit for them because, well, actually a triple hit because now they're going to have to deal with uh, the effects of this. You know, we're closing airplanes, we're closing bases. It's just a very hard situation. The thing about it is, the takeaway is, is you always want to take your hits when you're young. Yeah. That's my situation, looking back at it. If you're young, you can take it. You can you can eat beanie weenies, you can eat ramen noodles, you can do what's necessary to survive. I did it. But boy, when you're 60, it's really hard. Fast forward a little bit to 9-11 and uh, what, you, what were you experiencing then? You mentioned yesterday you were taxiing out when it hit. Well, I was a 7-6 captain and I was in the international pool, but they also used this for domestic. And I was called out to fly a Chicago, uh, Los Angeles trip. And uh, we were taxiing out and uh, the Chicago controller said, uh, eastbound ground stop. Then he said, total ground stop. The controllers were talking, the pilots were talking, everybody was just chatting as to what they knew and what they heard. At one point, you know, one of the controllers said something about he thought an Air Canada jet had, had been hijacked and they were getting ready to shoot it down or something to that effect. And his voice cracked. And uh, you don't really hear that very much in aviation. You don't mm-hmm. hear controllers become, you hear them ir- irritated, but you never hear them emotional. That was pretty different. And I received an ACARS message from my dispatcher, which I still have to this day. It basically said, we don't know what's going on. One of our airplanes hit the World Trade Center. We believe there's multiple airplanes that have been hijacked. We have no communication with anybody. And then he said, God bless you. And that was the ACARS message. And I'm having the conversation with my first officer, like, if we know this is going on, the people in the back know it's going on because the flight tents have been calling us. Who's to say that we don't have someone who means to do us harm on this aircraft and will do it even on the ground? So we locked down the aircraft. Were you parked on the ramp there for a while? Yeah, the big problem was that a wide-body aircraft, there are only limited parking spaces in Chicago. It's a limited area. So we couldn't go back to a gate. There were no gates. There were no gates for anybody. And there was a lot of very uh, heated discussion on the ramp frequencies with with our management ramp supervisors about getting back to – you know, a gate because we felt, you know, a lot of guys saying they were going to blow the slides on the, on the taxiways. And it was pretty wild. That being said, we finally went to a hard stand and were taken off uh, by a uh, stairs. And it was about four hours later and we mm-hmm. got to the terminal and it was of course mass chaos. And I just went back to one of my crash pads and uh, sat there for many days and uh, finally loaded up a rental car and everybody kind of headed to where we're going and everybody going south we loaded up and and drove home 
and you know, we had no idea what was going on. We were just kind of numb. I mean, it was a numb situation. You just kind of looked at each other and just kind of shook your head and go, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I know, I know our company post nine 11, they brought out grief counselors and these poor people had to stand in operations and uh, listen to a lot of crazy things. I know I was angry. I didn't have grief. I was very angry. And I kind of unloaded on one of these people down there when she asked me if I wanted to like talk about it. And I basically said, no, I want to kill somebody. You know, I mean, I was, you know, looking back, I shouldn't have said that and I shouldn't have done a five minute rant, but I did and I can't take it back. Did you notice other guys having similar experiences? Yeah, it was sort of like the walk of the zombies. I mean, you know, we were all going there and we were having to get the flight attendants back on the airplane. And it was sort of like when they've been thrown off a horse and you try to get somebody to remount a horse after they've been thrown. I was literally having to talk flight attendants back on the airplane. Mm-hmm. And flight attendants were carrying ice mallets in their jumpers and just, you know, they were sneaking on tear gas and just, I mean, it was, it was a wild situation. To make another comment, the, the captain of the 757 that crashed in the Pentagon was a classmate of mine in 7576 school. Was that Burlingame? Burlingame. And Chick was an incredible man. He was born in England, came to the U.S., a naval aviator, fighter pilot. He was number one distinguished graduate, top gun. He was a fast burner, and he was going to be a great leader in, at our airline. And, uh, you kind of, it's not a day goes by that I don't think about it mm-hmm. and you probably never, never won't, you know, and it was kind of an unusual situation because, you know, he was a, a very intelligent, astute captain in the Navy and I am pretty much an ignorant warrant officer from the hills of Tennessee and we got along very well. In fact, we worked in the simulator and you know, when things are going well in the simulator and it's just like magic, you know, you, Everything's kind just going well. Everything, yeah. Yeah, you, you know what the next guy's going to, you know what he's going to ask for next. And uh, it was a joy to work with him. And, mm. uh, you know, mm. I can also say that some people it's not a joy to work with. Amen. <laughs> but uh, it was just a very hard situation. And I remember people on the frequency, you know, in the center frequency talking about dropping nuclear bombs on Afghanistan and turning them into glass. And, you know, and, uh, controllers like trying to understand why we're talking about glass makers and you know and uh, he's like what do you mean glass makers you know we're like well nuclear bombs turn sand into you know glass and and, and, and this is on a center frequency you know and yeah. Yeah. you just it was just a very tough time and little did we know that it was going to change the way we think forever and, yeah what would you say to the guys that are going through, the pilots that are going through what they're going through nowadays that you carried from that experience? If you could share something with them, what would that be? Number one, if you're young, you can take anything. Take your hits when you're young. Before you have a mortgage, a second vacation home, three kids in college or whatever, take your hits now. When I was hired, even getting an interview was a a monumental event. And now now that we're all leaving the industry and there's nobody left, you're all going to get interviewed. You're all going to fly. You're all going to get your dream job. It just may take a few more years. 
What's your recommendation for plan B for guys that are going to experience, you know, we always think about this, you know, a lot of guys to come into the career and they think, well, this, I got the great job. It's going to last forever, but we know it's cyclical. Well, you know, they always say the old uh, analogy about a grocery store, you get in line at the grocery store. You never know which line when you check out, it's going to go fast, which one's going to go slow and which one's going to close. That's sort of the airline career right there. That to me, that is, uh, you never really know. Some people, you know, went with Pan Am. Some people went with America. Some people went with United. And these guys in the 60s when they were hiring, you know, gangbusters, they really didn't know. And uh, it's just one of those things. You don't really know. So a lot of it is luck. Some of it's skill. I have a daughter right now who's in the aviation management program at Middleton State University, and she wants to be a dispatcher. And I said, this is a wonderful time for you to be going to school because, you know, you don't have to suffer through the uh, furloughs and the pain and everything else that are coming down the chute. I said, just get your degree, figure it out, and, you know, it'll all work itself out. And that's the way I feel about, you know, anybody coming into aviation at this time, get a job. It doesn't really matter what it pays. Get some piloting command time, get some turbine time. And I guarantee you, you will be hired in a few years because there's nobody left. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably the way to, that's my look at it is that I really don't think you have a lot to worry about. I just think you're going to be delayed a little bit. I think yeah. And it's going to take time to eat through all these people that are furloughed. It's going to take time for the public to come back. And a lot of it depends on, in my opinion, whether we get a vaccine if we get a vaccine, I think it's going to happen very quickly. I think if we don't get a vaccine, it could be two, three, four years, you know, yeah. but I, I wish I could go back and start over and do it again. That's to me, it was the only thing I was ever good at. And it was the only thing I ever liked doing. And I would do it free. I would do it for free. I, I mean, I loved my job and I loved being a captain. I just to do it different. I would definitely Gosh, I don't know. I just had so many lucky breaks. I don't think I've really made, honestly, like I said, I was completely blessed with a wonderful career. And if it ended today, it ended and I'm okay with it. But I I would like to continue if I could. But I really don't have a choice in that. You know, my eyes have a choice in that. And that's kind of out of my control. My wife says it's in my control because she's, you know, a registered dietitian and she is an aviation consultant. And that's all she does. She deals with pilots and flight attendants and if you've lost your medical she will get you back hopefully so Mm -hmm. she does a very good job at it and one of the amazing things about Jill my wife is that she was a full accountant fully engrossed in her career and about five or six years ago she just said no I'm more concerned about our health than than anything else I'm going back to school and I'm going to be a dietitian and she did it and she did it and she's very good at it. Mm. So it's pretty amazing. She's helped several guys that I didn't think could get their medicals back, get their medicals back and, mm-hmm. uh, and all through nutrition. So we have kind of embraced the uh, plant-based diet. We're still working at it. I mean, you know, 80, 20, maybe yeah. and hopefully going down. But if there's something I could tell a young man right now or a young lady right now, he's in, going for aviation is, you know, you eat a lot of bar food on layovers. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, it's so easy to have a beer and a machos. Yeah. Uh, It's a little harder to pack 
nutritious food or search it out, especially when you're dog tired after five legs. Does Jill consult with active crew members now as to how to have a lifestyle that uh, is conducive? Yeah, as a matter of fact, that's one of the things she specializes in is basically being a lifestyle coach for aviation. And she also does meal planning. She shows you how and what to pack for a layover, how to eat. And uh, especially now that there aren't that many restaurants uh, available and some are social distancing and that kind of thing, uh, it's it's an amazing journey. She has uh, taken me from where I thought I was healthy to another level. And mm-hmm. uh, I can't say enough about it. It's that, it's pretty amazing. Uh, that's something, if she's okay with that, I'll tack on to the end of the interview. You know. Yeah, she would. I, I'm, she's, you know, she's fine with it, and I'm very proud of her. So please give her, give her a hit because she she deserves it. And I will. Uh, the testimonials that she has on her website are pretty amazing, guys. Yeah. No. People are scared. They lose their career. They lose their income, and they don't. You know, they search out with other pilots or on a web. Uh, you know, chat rooms and that kind of thing. And I would love to spread the word that she can help you because she she's helped a lot of people and she's helped me. Excellent. So, so she it sounds like she goes beyond just diet work and segues into almost uh, emotional, psychological counseling, thinly disguised. To a certain extent. I mean, she's not licensed to do that, but of course of what she does, yeah, she becomes your friend and she helps you and that's the way she looks at it. She also does exercise you know she's a usta certified coach she's just going to try to you you might want to do this you might want to do this you might want to use bands you might want to get on a stationary bike you want you know whatever and it works and uh, i was amazed because i didn't believe in plant-based food i didn't believe in nutrition is changing my life but it certainly has yeah and her spinning it towards the aviation community is pretty cool because nobody does that. Even our aeromedical people at the union that we pay to help us, they basically say, you know, you're on your own here. You got to go find somebody to help you, you know, fix your diabetes or fix your high blood pressure or whatever. And we'll, we'll advise you how to handle that with the FAA, but we can't tell you how to fix it. Right. You got any parting words for uh, people who might be watching this interview? Just chill. I mean, you know, it, this too shall pass. Yeah. It will pass. And if you're young enough, it'll be a blip on the radar screen. What about the other group that are closer to retirement age? What do you recommend for them? I would say hang in there as long as you can. Uh, <laughs> what, what would you recommend to, for them to do to take the pressure off, to dis, take their focus off what could be happening versus what you can do to handle this? Turn off the TV. Uh, I think that's number one. Turn off the TV, get out, exercise. There's a whole world out there around you. And, you know, and here's the deal. Even if the world comes to a screeching halt as far as your job and everything else, as long as you have your health and your family, uh, you'll probably be okay. It's just a matter of of sitting down and go, what am I thankful for versus what are my problems? And what you're thankful for generally always comes out ahead. I love it. I love it. That's a good place to wrap it up, Joe. Thank you so much for this. Good talking to you, Bert. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks. Firefighters at the station Listen as the tone goes out Fire alarms activated And 
the building is showing smoke And so the engine rolls To trouble again There's people at the scene just watching People running out for their lives The firefighters get them and help them out And go looking for more inside That's just what they do These women and men Cause they made a promise And here they come Someone hurt and called 911 And the sirens saying Hope is on the way There's a hero racing to help a stranger today Saturday night in the city The cruiser gets a dispatch call A little girl says her daddy's mad And drank a bunch of alcohol So they head away Into trouble again People at the house are screaming Someone yells he's got a gun A little girl full of panic cries out Daddy don't you shoot my mom That's where the cops come in These women and men Cause they made a promise And here they come Someone heard Called 911 And the sirens saying Hope is on the way There's a hero racing To help a stranger the call don't get paid anymore for danger or get to pick the ones they want they just go to where the few will go maybe lay it all on the line as they do their job do it one more They made a promise and here they come Someone heard and called 911 And the sirens saying hope is on the way There's a hero racing to help a stranger Help a stranger 